Welcome to Peripheral Thinking, the series of conversations with academics, advisors, entrepreneurs and activists, people all championing those ideas on the margins, the periphery. Why is this important? Well, as the systems on which we've depended for the last 50, 60 stroke thousand years crumble and creak, people increasingly looking for new stories, new ideas, new myths, if you like, that might guide and inform how they live and work. So in these conversations, we take time to speak to those people who are championing the ideas on the margins, championing the ideas on the periphery, those ideas which are going to shape the mainstream tomorrow. Uh, And our hope is that you're a little bit inspired, a little bit curious enough to take some of these ideas and bring them back to the day-to-day of your work and your life. Well, Martin, thank you for joining me on Peripheral Thinking. Yeah, nice to be here again, Ben. Yeah, so we actually uh, we did we spoke, which is a, a conversation people should uh, should should get into uh, earlier, probably quite a long time ago now. I think we were sort of talking more generally about you know the the kind of spirit, the the kind of role and importance of Buddhism today in a kind of time of kind of mindfulness everywhere. I think we got into some of the uh, specifics of it before, so I encourage people to to check that out. Um, but yeah, so kind of a, a bit appreciative of your time to to join us again. And there was a sort of specific kind of focus to this conversation today. And I'll sort of share the sort of contextual backstory just as a, as a way in. I was fortunate enough to um, to come and sit on uh, sit on a retreat uh, at the retreat center, which you uh, one of the one of the things you do kind of lead and lead and run, which is in the south of France. And that was in uh, June of this year. And uh, you were teaching a week and there was uh, another teacher uh, for the second week uh, who's a, a monk called Ajahn Suchito, who I think is is based at the a monastery here in Sussex. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. At uh, Chitta Viveka. Right. Yeah. And uh, uh, as a sort of as a sort of consequence of that and the sort of teaching, I uh, spent some time exploring some of the other things that Ajahn Suchito had uh, sort of spoken about. And there was a, a story he'd recounted, which uh, sort of piqued my curiosity which was he, he's part of a um, the, the monastery that he or anything. So he, he used to lead that monastery here in the UK. Is that right? But he's now not leading it. Yeah, he sort of retired from being the abbot and therefore is freed from some of his administrative duties. That's the fruits of, you know, being 47 years a monk. And now he gets to be kind of wise elder without having to uh, manage logistics. Right. Yeah. And uh, you very much get that that kind of the the spirit of that feeling with him. And he was he was talking about the the network that that monastery is part of, which I think, if I kind of understand it correctly, it sort of spans something like four continents, ten countries. There's like three hundred individual monasteries which now feed into that network. So by the kind of measure of many organizations that are sort of complex multinational beasts. It's a multinational, yeah, yeah. And even though it doesn't feel like you're in any way corporate uh, when you're in one of the monasteries, but the degree of reach and complexity and scale of the organization is broadly comparable, yeah. Mm. And uh, so uh, Adam Sujito was talking about um, having recently spent some time with the abbot who leads the whole organization, um, who I think is, I believe is based in, in Thailand. And he was talking about, you know, the, the kind of wonder of spending this sort of day with him where, you know, clearly like anybody who's leading a large multinational complex organization, there's a constant stream of demands on his time. There's, you know, constant sort of complexity or by many measures, constant complexity. You know, if you just take the real estate 
alone. I mean, clearly you're sitting atop 300 different sites, which are all in various states of crumbling disrepair. And so he was talking about the, the spirit with which uh, Ajahn Liem, I think he's called the, the abbot of the, the whole network, how he can sort of just sort of sit with this ease and he can lead this organization without, you know, seemingly a, a kind of support team of many, many people without the, the constant sort of stresses and sort of strains that you might associate leading a large organization with, particularly if you kind of flip the reach of that, or not flip the reach, flip the nature of that organization to what we might call a corporate culture. You know, somebody who's leading an organization of thousands of people over 10 countries, over four continents, you know, the, the association with that is, you know, constant stress, armies of support people, constantly pinging iPhone, you know, thousands and thousands of emails stretching off into the kind of email sphere, and how the the, the, the kind of contrast between these these kind of two images really. And I was really curious about what was going on. And one of the um, one of the the or two of the principles which I think have been handed down to you know through that monastery network from its first founding fifty years ago was that the spirit with which the leaders, the spirit with which people kind of practice and exist within the within the network. So the spirit with which it is led, essentially, comes down to or, or could broadly be described by these two, two principles. And the two principles are personal responsibility and community awareness. Well, let's let, we can use those two uh, points as our way in, right? Personal responsibility and community awareness. But it's easy to have nice principles you know, but it's a whole other thing to actually have them be an expression of one's life. So I would say the single great massive advantage that Ajahn Lumnian has, or that that whole structure has over most corporate structures, is that their business is the business of inner transformation. So that those two things, personal responsibility and community awareness, are not principles they're trying to apply, actually. They're that they're fruits of what their organization is all about. So there's, there's a few ways we could talk about this. But if you imagine the leader of an organization in various ways, and, you know, I, I occupy that role in, like you say, the seven organizations that I've founded and, and are still involved in directing in some way across three different countries. And so, you know, little less complex than the, the, than the Forest Sangha network from Ajahn Lumian, but nevertheless has some complexity. The, if people are going to see, in this case, the abbot of a monastery, which is our shorthand for the CEO, if you like, there's three things that are going on there that are really important. And the first one, and they have two sides. They have the size of what... what the teacher, abbot, CEO is doing, and then the other side is what the person is getting. So the first one is one of availability. And it's not so much about the, the quantity of being available. The abbot, CEO, may not be available very much of the time because, of course, various duties, activities, responsibilities, etc. But the quality of availability, if you go to see the abbot, if you actually get, you're going to see somebody who's leading an organization that's practiced in this way, you get a really good quality of attention from them. And that's a powerful thing. If you, you go to see the boss, the CEO, the, and you feel like, okay, I'm right here. I'm really listening. The eye contact is here. The body language is suggesting I'm here. I'm available. I'm interested. 
I'm attentive. And that's, I think, often lacking in a lot of organizations where you want the quantity of availability, maybe very difficult to get a meeting with the person in charge, and you might have something important to say, to ask for, uh, to report, etc. And then if you do get their attention, how actually available do they feel to you? How good is the quality of their attention? So again, you, that's not a decision you can make. I just decide to be fully attentive. It's, a, it's an inner training, right? It's a work of a lifetime in many ways. But that's a, that's a very, very powerful thing not to underestimate what it's like to go and see your manager, boss, etc., and to feel like they're really listening to you. I mean, that's true in all of life. I, I lead courses here where we sometimes do dialogue work. And one of the reports, regardless of the content of these dialogue exercises that we do, what's often so powerful for people is the fact that they've gotten somebody's whole, complete, non-judgmental, undivided attention. Somebody's looking at them, listening to them, acknowledging them. And sometimes people will say, wow, I feel like that's the first time in my life that I've been really, really listened to. So that's that's the first that's the first quality, and like I said, it's not just a principle; it's a practice, right? But to be when one is giving one's attention, to be really available to the person in front of you, and for the person in front of you then to really feel that they're getting your attention and they're being listened to. And then the second principle it's similar in some way, but it's the quality of presence. So that you feel like the you can see in this case the abbot Ajahn or you go and see the the leader of the organisation that they're not fidgety, thinking about other things. That they they oh, there's a sort of settled presence. That's one of the beautiful things. We're sitting with somebody where you feel like this person's somehow deeply trustworthy, in just in as much as that they're comfortable in their skin. They're able to just sit where they are. And there's something, the and then the other side, what you get when you spend time with somebody like that is oh, you sort of feel drawn into that. It's, it's kind of reassuring, relaxing, confidence-inspiring. Oh, you know, you go into the office of somebody who feels like they have a kind of integrity with themselves an inner kind of quietitude and confidence that they don't need to run away from themselves distract themselves etc they're here and so that quality of hereness has a, has a sort of actually in the, in the buddhist tradition we would call that a blessing quality right you feel like you get the blessing of being around that person and then the third quality is that of wisdom not just knowledge you go and see the leader of the organization you know that this person in this case, has you know has done their meditation practices, sat long retreats, has been through the fire of the inner work that the monastery is all about. The equivalent in a in a business organisation would be that somebody's been through the different levels and processes and roles of an organisation. They actually know. They actually know what it's like to be in the other side of the equation. They know what it's like to be in the situation of the person that's come to see them. And so, if you're coming to see someone and you feel like they're genuinely not just knowledgeable but they're genuinely wise they know what it's like then you listen to them in a different kind of way and you feel like oh they're they're what they have to say about something is really worth listening to really worth considering really worth taking on and so there's 
in a way, all the three principles we're talking about are about the quality of relationship that's there between you know a, a leader, let's say, and somebody that they're meeting with. The quality of the relationship uh, that, that can run through the, the hierarchies of an organization. Because often, otherwise, organizations are just relying on hierarchy. It's like, well, this person's in charge, so we do what they tell them. This person's in charge, so their word counts. This person's in charge, so you should be grateful to be able to see them when they're available. <laughs> but actually, the qualities that the, that person brings are hugely significant. And often, if you look closely at an organization, there's a way in which the, the very primary relationships of the founders or, or leaders if there are multiple, or the quality of the of the relationship between the person at the top and whoever they're most in contact with, the qualities, for good or not, of those primary relationships often kind of filter out into the whole culture of the organization. And therefore, even if the person at the top is smart and successful, etc., if they're also, you know, kind of relationally challenged or emotionally unresolved or energetically kind of, you know, overly busy, anxious, distracted, those qualities leak out in some way and become part of the whole organizational culture. Yeah, because I guess the, where, where, they, where the people would see that is there's kind of fear stitched in or if you think about some of the things that people would say in an organization that become problematic, like um, people, you know, that people, time management, how do I manage my time and what they kind of mean by that? There's constant sort of demands on their time, you know, too, too many demands on their time. And a lot of that then is about, you know, uh, whether they are comfortable and confident enough to feel like they can just get on with things themselves, as opposed to constantly reporting. Uh, and constantly sort of showing, demonstrating to other people that they're useful, demonstrating to other people that they're they're valuable. Um, I guess you know th those things too are just are spawning, uh, for want of a want of a better phrase, from some of those kind of underlying from those underlying causes. It's actually you know how how safe do I feel? How content do I feel? You know, I guess safety is is a lot of what this is about. Yeah, and and that sort of. The agitation that begins as an inner quality i'm just agitated in my inner life ends up being projected outwardly and then agitation ends up running all of that stuff running the reporting uh, that has to be done running the sense of how empowered or not people feel etc etc and so you know, safety or another word really for that or it, trust you know the degree to which you learn, you learn, actually trust your own inner life trust yourself to be with yourself and then that feeds into how much people feel trusted when they listen to you how trustworthy the person in charge seems to be the more quiet internally the person is the more trustworthy they feel the more easy it is for people to feel trusted and trust is incredibly empowering if somebody feels trusted they sort of rise to that whereas if they feel the opposite, if they feel that they're being sort of spied upon, checked up on, untrusted, and that they constantly need to prove themselves uh, and report what they're doing, demonstrate their competency, uh, you know, that's, that's an undermining of trust. And that stuff uses up a lot of energy, you know, and then therefore a lot of time and therefore feeling oh, a sense of scarcity of time, of energy, of capacity. And so it's it's interesting because... If you feel trustworthy, everything sort of slows down. All those qualities that I was speaking about are actually qualities that slow everything down. Availability and attention. 
Ah, oh, yes. Okay, let me really listen to you. That slows things down. People being really present instead of distracted. That slows things down. And we're terrified of slowing things down. I mean, we think we know, I haven't got enough time as it is. I need to go quicker. But there's a, there's a strange thing there that the quicker we go, the more we exaggerate and the sense that there isn't enough. There isn't enough time. There isn't enough time. Because rushing creates a sense of there's not enough time. And it's, it's quite counterintuitive. The last thing you think you want to do when you haven't got enough time is slow down. <laughs> but it's radical. But when you slow down, you literally create a, a, a more sense of space. And so I don't mean, of course, if you're going for the bus and the bus is leaving, there's no point saying, oh, that guy on the podcast said to slow down. <laughs> no, no, you're going to miss the bus. No, the bus is coming, run. But it's not, it's not so much even about the speed you're moving at. It's, it's more the, the internal racing. It's like our nervous systems are operating usually faster than is necessary and faster than is helpful. And oh, slowing down breeds a kind of clarity. It breeds an economy of energy, an economy of movement, an economy of, of uh, seeing what needs to be done. And that's very helpful. That's why there's that famous adage, right, that uh, sometimes used when people come and teach meditation or mindfulness in a business context. They say, you know, it's good to meditate for 20 minutes every day, unless you're somebody who's really busy, in which case better to meditate for 40 minutes. <laughs> you know, it's like the busier you are, the more important a sense of slowing down actually is. And that's very counterintuitive and almost sub subversive, really, in, in corporate culture in many ways. I like that. Well, I like the subversion bit, uh, but I also like the, the kind of the, the point around business, because if you think about the principles that you spoke about, you know, how attentive, my quality of my presence and the wisdom that I might might bring, clearly... I can't do those. Or, or one of the questions that had been kind of rumbling in my mind somewhat is, you know, what are the what are the obstacles to those things? And um, of course, a lot of the obstacles to those things they exist in me too. I can't be attentive. I don't have a quality of presence. I may not even give space for some of my wisdom or experience to come through if I'm sort of distracted. If I'm kind of you know worried about what's coming next. If I'm you know concerned by something that may be happening over there in the past or or in or in the future. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious to sort of explore some of those um, things that might get in the way of that practice. And maybe oh, sorry, it might get in the way of those principles. My ability to perform those principles and then some of the things that people can do to uh, to kind of to i guess to start to understand how they too might be compromising some of those their, their ability to live and act in that way yeah well I, I imagine that even the way we're speaking about them now right when you speak about agitation or going fast etc yeah, imagine people don't have to look too far to recognize those qualities in themselves, right? To, to, I mean, just sense your experience for a moment right now, anybody that's listening. Just sense like what it's like, the feel of sitting here now. Just sense your face, for example. Is there any unnecessary tension, you know, just in your jaw or around your eyes? Any way that you're just kind of... Eh, that you're just slightly tense or slightly pushing in a way that's maybe so habitual you don't even notice it, but, oh, is actually not neither necessary nor helpful. Your shoulders, you know, we tend to hold tension in different places. So if you just check in in one or other zones, you might well find, right, some way in which you're kind of 
tenser than is necessary or that which you're, you're operating internally in a way that's faster than necessary. And so a lot of what meditative practices are, are firstly really recognizing what we're doing habitually that's unnecessarily and unhelpful and then learning uh, how, we can, how we can soften that. And then we're learning to value these kind of inner, sort of invisible and yet really potent qualities. Like what would it be? What would managerial structure in companies look like if when we were looking for leaders, if we were valuing deep attention, presence and wisdom? Because those things, they, they can seem sort of peripheral to the hard nosed stuff of business. But those inequalities absolutely determine how you see outer events. So, for example, you know, somebody was just asking me recently how things are going here at the Mulan, the, the centre where you came on retreat this summer. And so this is a place where every week there's about 70 or 80 people here um, between staff and people that are here for a course. And then every Sunday the course finishes and they all leave. And then every Monday a new lot come in. And you know, there's various complexity and intensity for the dozen or so people on, the, on staff here who are managing and because it's residential, it's feeding that many people every day, and it's the you know the food orders and the staff rotors and the sleeping arrangements and all the bathrooms and the toilets that inevitably leak and break and you know just all that stuff. And so somebody when they were asking me, oh how you know how's it going uh, the Mulan this year? We've got a long program, thirty-one weeks of consecutive. Uh, courses like that and i said oh it's all flowing along quite well you know the usual thing every day of just dealing with a series of minor catastrophes <laughs> and i say that sort of light-heartedly but it's interesting that's the stuff of running anything right running a family <laughs> running an organization running a business anything it's like if the more complexity something has the more minor catastrophes there are so what makes the difference as to whether you see them as minor or whether you see them as catastrophes, right? It's really about the inequalities and therefore the perspective you take. You zoom out a little bit and everything is minor. The more quiet and spacious one is internally, the more one's able to see everything. Everything is minor. We're just here living and dying, you know? <laughs> really? I mean, big, big... On the monastery I stayed at in Thailand when I was first practicing, there was a sign on the tree that I used to walk past every day. And it said, relax, in 100 years, all new people. <laughs> right? So in, from that perspective, it's all minor. It's all minor. All too soon we'll be dust. And the organizations we, we lead will also, you know, a few decades, few centuries from now, there'll be dust. So... It doesn't mean they don't need care and attention. No, they really need care and attention. But it's easier to give something care and attention when you have that sense that it's also, it's like, whatever it is, it needs care and attention, but it's not worth stressing about. Whatever it is, that's always true. Whatever it is, it's not worth stressing about. And then the other side, how easily we get caught up in the drama and we treat everything like a catastrophe. Oh my God, so-and-so's leaving. Oh my God, that report didn't get filed. Oh my God. You know, and we're kind of addicted to the oh my God mentality. The more busy and stressed we are, it's, 
we sort of complain, oh, I'm so busy and stressed. But we sort of say it almost like a boast. It's like, can you tell how important I am? Because I'm so busy and I'm so stressed. I'm very busy and important. And oh, that's it. that's exhausting internally. And it's also rather kind of, it's really unpleasant to be around, you know, somebody who's flooding us with their own stress, agitation, and sense that everything's a catastrophe. So that's the real exploration of how do I meet the stuff of life? How do I meet the inevitable inconveniences and discomforts and what we call things going wrong? Oh my goodness, everything's going wrong. Things aren't really going wrong, they're just going. You know, you're going along. And part of the nature of things going is the nature of entropy. Things break, things fail, people get confused or disappointed or upset with each other. There are misunderstandings and conflicts and differences of view. You know, those aren't things going wrong. They're just they're the way things go. And if one's sort of expecting that, if one's expecting today to be a series of minor catastrophes, then one won't be disappointed, probably. And there's that sense of an inner space with which to kind of flow more graciously and spaciously with the inevitable um, you know, stuff that comes up, the stuff we call the problems of life. And that, that's, that's really, really beautiful because, yeah, you can, you can sort of see those scenarios kind of bubbling up for everybody in their different kind of context. One of the things I'm then curious about is... Um, obviously, someone like yourself or um, the various people we were talking about running those organizations with, you know, 30, 40, 50 plus years practice, clearly this ability to flow, this ability to adapt to the changing conditions, the changing stuff. And, and for me, this sort of is about embodying this idea of a kind of creativity. And by, by creativity, I don't just mean, I don't mean writing a song or painting a picture, but how I can sort of continually positively adapt and respond to the changing conditions whether those changing conditions are things that i like or those things that i don't like and so if i'm a top an organization whether the organization is me or 10 people or 10,000 people or whatever it may be my ability to flow as you were talking about my ability to respond my ability to take each you know each new unfolding event as an invitation to respond in a in a positive um, in a positive creative way you obviously have decades and decades and decades of practice that people were talking about running those organizations. I mean, like you said, it is their, it is their work. I'm kind of curious, what do we think is a way that somebody can start to get a sense for this? Because I guess that's part of what needs to happen. If somebody is listening to this and they don't have a history of practice, but they can, there's something in the spirit of what we're talking about, just even the ability to respond to the stuff of life through flow, you know, how, how to invite somebody into that exploration, do you think? Well, there's, there's, there's sort of small way. It depends how, um, how uh, motivated the person is, right? I mean, there's, there's small ways, medium sized ways, and then massive life changing <laughs> ways. The Goldilocks, the Goldilocks, <laughs> right? Sweet. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it might be, it might be as simple as, you know, the, having it written on the fridge or on the desk, you know, expect multiple things to go wrong today. <laughs> You know, you get used to that idea. And it's sort of weird because that can sound like a, oh, that's a pretty pessimistic way to approach life. But hey, what it means is when multiple things go wrong today, I'm prepared. I wasn't expecting any different. And then if by some happy coincidence, multiple things don't go wrong today, oh, well, that's a very good day. <laughs> so, you know, 
I, I know that sounds like a small thing, but it's actually it's a it's a real reorientation of one's mindset, right? To I'm unafraid of problems, and I'm expecting um, things to go wrong, and therefore I'm kind of, you know, I'm sort of orientated to that as a possibility and not a, a terrifying possibility, not a possibility to get overly kind of exercised about. So something like that is a, is a very kind of small, low-level way in to that orientation. And then there's the fact, well, oh, if I actually recognise the truth of some of the things we've been speaking about, if I recognise, oh, I am, I do move internally in a way that's faster than, than necessary, in a way that's actually kind of exhausting for me, as well as probably to some extent for those around me. And I recognise that actually I really, I'm not able to give a, a, a fullness of attention to things and that I am like, present. I don't really know what that would really be like to be fully in my body, to actually be able to feel like just the gentleness of my arms at rest in my lap, my breath moving gently in my chest, and my attention available to somebody else. And I'm more likely to be sitting there kind of fiddling away with my fingers tapping my feet, you know, etc. Then, okay, when maybe one recognises, oh, it might be worth actually learning some of these skills. And of course, there's people one can work with whether that's in a, uh, in the sort of context i work with of people actually showing up for meditation classes or courses or retreats etc or whether it's working with a coach who actually, who might work with a small group or individually to actually engage in the business of some internal training some attentional training some emotional training you know and the ways in which those are going to that's what we've been exploring, the ways that the way internal training and transformation has it's not just the inner landscape that changes. The most significant that's subjectively, oh, it feels so much better to be able to access presence and ease and openness and groundedness. But objectively or outwardly, it, it it's transformational in the way that we've been describing. So it really depends the degree to which somebody feels the recognition of what we're talking about and therefore feels the kind of uh, momentum or motivation to uh, do something about it. Because even the, the recognition of what we're talking about, is, again, it comes down to kind of to language because I don't think there's anybody who doesn't kind of recognise to varying degrees. Or, sorry, there, of course, many, many, many people recognise to some degree that the stuff of their work, given that's the arena we're talking about, comes with a feeling of stress, comes with a feeling of anxiety, comes with a feeling of discomfort, comes with a feeling of struggle, oftentimes. Uh, and I think, I guess a lot of what we're talking about at kind of root, at course, is our ability to kind of respond to that stuff. And um, there was something you were, you were talking about there, you know, that just the idea of that kind of one of those things being the quote, you know, stuff I don't like will happen today. And you used a really interesting phrase that I was kind of curious about is that um, you, you were talking about people being afraid of problems. And, and I, I'm kind of curious about because I think people are, why is it that, and maybe, you know, why is it do we think, do you think that people are afraid of problems? Why do we avoid, what is it that concerns us about problems or the fear, the idea of a problem? It's, it's a good question. I think, I mean, to some extent, it's like it engages our fight-flight mechanism, right? The sort of parasympathetic uh, nervous system goes into action. And 
that's probably been helpful, that has been helpful evolutionarily, right, in our past. We're kind of still running on a pretty ancient operating system where we were constantly having to be on the lookout for genuinely life-threatening problems, like uh, whether that's, uh, you know, being pounced on by a tiger or or whatever. You know, the, the various very real immediate existential threats that were lurking for us mostly in the form of probably wild predatory animals you know and that's that might seem well what's that got to do with my life but actually in our evolutionary history that's really not very long ago right that's only a few a few thousand generations and evolution works slowly so we're still we've still got a limbic system that's that's hardwired to see a problem um something unpleasant or negative as an existential threat and to sort of freak out about it and so that's a that's a question of training right it doesn't that's our genetic inheritance or our, 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 our uh, uh, the inheritance of our brain functioning if you like but it doesn't have to be our present or our future that's what you can train and there's really interesting studies now that are done on meditational training looking at the parasympathetic nervous system the vagus nerve all these sort of regulatory mechanisms that see how we can actually we can we can transform the way we respond to perceived threat or problem and that 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 we're still just as available to it if there is whatever the equivalent of a wild tiger is you know if you're crossing the road and a speeding car is hurtling towards you it's not like oh dear you've turned off your parasympathetic nervous system and you're not going to notice no you're every bit as capable of, of having a sudden flood of fear and, and adrenaline when it's appropriate but you're actually able to dis- determine and to discern when something is actually a real threat or when it's what we were calling earlier a minor catastrophe you know and where it do, where it needs care it needs attention it needs a response it might need a decision to be made but it doesn't need panic drama uh and stress because what you're sort of talking about there is is uh, how instinctive the response is or not and a lot i guess of what sort of talking about this idea of how how much attention, the quality of my attention or the quality of the presence, the wisdom I bring is, I guess, is a little bit about how caught up I am in my own reactivity. If I'm seeing everything as a threat, everything as a fear, everything as, you know, a kind of metaphorical tiger about to eat me, clearly I'm not listening to what the person is saying or I'm not able to kind of, you know, to dip into my own kind of innate pools of wisdom and creativity because I'm stuck in a fear response place. Uh, and if that is the the kind of that that's the underlying kind of operating system that many people are are coming with i guess part of what we're talking about are the kind of tools and you know whether it's the quote on your fridge or some more dedicated kind of practice something which buys you time to be less reactive in the moment feels like a way maybe of bringing back to um you know how people may aim to turn up a little bit differently yeah it reminds me of that there's a famous quote by victor frankel and talks about that space between stimulus and response and that's what these these inner practices are doing they're they're helping us recognize and open up that space between stimulus and response so that we actually get to choose our response rather than just having our response be chosen for us by our habitual reactivity and by our you know that all those other things we've been the agitation and unease and sort of obliviousness to our functioning with which we're operating most of the time so yeah open up that space that follows stimulus and you can actually 
use that space to, to choose a wise response, a skillful response, an appropriate response, rather than just a conditioned and then often drama-fueled or panic-led response. And it's interesting that we, we speak about that out of a Buddhist context because there's a famous Zen story from, you know, all these centuries ago where some student asks the teacher, you know, how would you, how do, what, what is, you know, real awakening? What's enlightenment? And the, the, the response of the teacher is, it's an appropriate response. It's such a simple answer, but this real, this beautiful thing. And, and a, fr- a friend of mine in California actually started a company um, bringing this kind of work to uh, executives of tech companies. And then she, ca- she called the company Appropriate Response. It's all about that. Like, that's what that inner training does. It allows us to make an appropriate response. Simple, but really transformative. Yeah. And so some of the, like we spoke about, some of the ways that people may get into that is either working with somebody or, you know, the, the kind of lightest form, something that helps people kind of reframe it a little bit, whether it's the quote on the fridge, whether it's the quote on the desk, whether it's a more dedicated kind of intentional work with other people, just to help people start to see where my response is just reactive as opposed to appropriate. And maybe that would, you know, it would be nice to think of that as a kind of, as a position on the board, right? Well, like, well, that phrase you had a Buddha on the board. What about if you had a, you know, chief chief wisdom officer? <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Come just just help your president officer. You know, chief space between stimulus and response officer. <laughs> you know, and that's the contribution to the board. Okay, what about if we slow down here? What about if we just see what's going on in the room, right? Before jumping, what's going on? You know, how radical that might be. Yeah, and so I guess that kind of just leads to just a second part of what I was kind of curious to talk about, uh, which is start. I guess you know a continuation, really. But just some of these ideas in practice. And when we were uh, having a, a conversation about this conversation the other week, and you were talking about the the spirit of um, with, with the the person who runs your your retreat center, and this 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 idea, this intention that the person who is leading the organization is uh, is you know I guess is not constantly caught up in the in the in the day-to-day not constantly caught up in the stuff of stuff so that they have the space to be available they have the space to kind of be present and i'm really curious about how the kind of practice of these things because if i also think about some other conversations that i've had with people and they will sort of talk about oh you know the thing around you know being a leader is helping people make decisions or um you know knowing when to step in when to shape things you know recognizing when somebody is not up to a task and so that they need to sort of step in to support them and so this spirit of you know what you were talking about when we spoke before this idea that the leader should be in a way kind of free of the tasks of the day so that they can be present you know going back to everything we were talking about before they can be present they can be aware they can be attentive but of course we tend not to do that oftentimes we're just kind of we get sort of very cool so just kind of curious about some of these some of these kind of principles and how it sort of translates in practice you know just like that one example how do i know when to step in versus not step in when is it right to be leaving somebody else to continue or when is it my duty to to do the reverse that and i'm kind of curious even just taking like a micro example like that what the yeah. what you're feeling is and about there isn't a formula that. for that right it's that but uh, again i would say that to follow the same thread we've been looking at that comes back right to inner discernment so that you can see what is your your perceived need to step in or your wish to step in what's driving it is it 
clarity of recognizing something needs attention or is it your own kind of inner restlessness that you just can't leave things alone you know it's, it's like the idea of micromanaging we all know that it's not helpful to micromanage but you can tell someone don't micromanage but stopping micromanaging isn't a strategic decision right it dem- it really only happens when someone can recognize well why am i micromanaging Is it because I don't trust the person that I've empowered in the role? Is it because I've got this ongoing belief that I have to do everything and if nobody will do it, nobody will quite take responsibility in the way I do? And if you do have that belief, is that true? Or is that just a kind of historically constructed view, etc.? So it comes back to the same inner, you know, the inner work which determines the outer outcome. And in terms of trying to have someone in a leadership role who's free of that, you know, it never works, right? It's not like you're going to have somebody who's completely free all day and got nothing to do, but as an aim. So uh, trying people in leadership role, the main leadership role here at the Moulin, for example, I'm always trying to have her have as much free time as possible because that free time very often won't end up being free, you know? because of the, the the endless stream of minor catastrophes right but the more that she's free the more that, that that availability to then actually be nimble and flexible to be able to step in and help the person who needs help um take care of the unexpected thing that could never have been on the agenda but suddenly needs most of the attention today etc and then if today's a day when there's not many minor catastrophes and that person's genuinely free great let them actually Ah, oh, to have some space to walk around. That's a lot of what I do here at the Moulin. I walk around a lot. Now, I know that doesn't sound very impressive, but I would say that's a real key part to knowing what's happening, interacting with people where there's not any drama. I'm not checking, have they done this? Are they doing that? I'm just like, oh, I'm walking around seeing, oh, that, that needs doing, and then go and find the person. How are you doing? How are you doing? So to availability to to have a sense of what's going on and then availability to keep coming back to oneself so that again availability so that those inequalities of availability and presence get nourished so that then they actually can show up to people so that's the other thing you know we talk about we talked about that quality of availability i i i wonder how much leaders and organizations walk around you know, and that's something to come back to Ajahn Lumien we talked about. You get the sense the abbot is not some absent, distant professor. The, the abbot isn't in their glamorous corner office and the, absent, the, the, the abbot isn't off playing golf, you know. So as a leader, if you're around, you don't, and maybe leaders often feel they have to be, if they're around, they have to be somehow justifying their senior position, justifying their salary and either looking busy or if they're not busy taking off somewhere. But I would say, what about if you were just walking around, checking in with people, you know, just kind of there in the environment, and you're there in, in a sort of, just a, pres- a, a, a solidarity with the people you're working with that is expressed through the fact that you're just there. You don't need to be busy, but you're there. And then you're, before you're available in a, in a kind of different kind of way for people when they need you. But also you're available just to your own perceptions. You get to know an organization by actually really being plugged into how it works. 
And that's different from kind of, you know, giving out orders from on high or checking in with people or putting out the fires of the various uh, minor catastrophes because that stuff has to be done. But all the while you're doing that, you know, and you're very task focused. It's different than just that kind of oh, what I'm what I'm calling walking around, which, you know, just has a lot more dimensionality to it. In my experience, you know, it's really the more I can walk around, uh, you know, see what people are doing, be, you know, also just your, my visible presence. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm here. I'm, you know. I like that, the, the, the kind of the, the presence, the presence of presence. So kind of being around, being aware, because one of the other things which was coming up a little bit, that just the thing around uh, micromanaging, you know, of course, if we're might, you know, you were ask, asking the, the kind of rhetorical question, you know, why is it that I'm sort of stepping in? And one of the other things which was coming up for me as you were talking about that was, of course, you know, if I'm micromanaging somebody else, it's probably because I'm micromanaging myself at some kind of other level that I'm not seeing. And all I'm kind of vomiting onto the world is a lot of what I'm doing to myself, but it has remained kind of blind to me. Uh, and so often those things can be good kind of pointers or reminders. Oh, hold on, you know, the question, why am I doing this? Why do I keep feeling the need to sort of step in and manage that for that person? Is like, what, you know, what am I, in what way am I doing that to myself? Uh, and that being a kind of an invitation to to kind of open that up somewhat. And two other things I would like to uh, just uh, sort of talk about, which are, again, this idea of the, these things in practice. We, talk, we spoke there about knowing when to, when to step in, when's the right, when's the right time to, get off the walk and kind of get into a kind of dialogue or whatever it might be. And the two, there's two other things which come up so often in the kind of the language of uh, leadership, the language of kind of work. And one is decision making and the other is planning and control. Right. So, you know, often and, you know, clearly most of the people who listen to this are not uh in kind of leading kind of mega organizations and a lot of uh so th this but this idea of kind of planning and control this i'll have a plan having plans putting plans together being in charge being you know sort of controlling things yeah well i think probably both with planning and control and with decision making anything i say might sound a little bit uh controversial or or possibly just plain like out to lunch but let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's see let's see so given that the mind will tend towards control and everybody can recognize that you know we suddenly we say to some people oh you're a control freak but it, it always struck me as a strange kind of thing to throw at someone because we'll look at look back we're all control freaks you know it's like it's not given that the mind will tend to control anyway that's actually, I would say, evidence that one's that intentionally you can let go and let go and let go and let go, because basically we're not in control of very much. Like I said earlier, here we are living and dying, you know, and most of what happens to us is out of control. You know, most and and that that can seem difficult to acknowledge. Sometimes we can find lots of objections to that. What do you mean? No, I make this happen and I make that happen and I bring home the I bring home my salary and I hire and fire people and I. You know, okay, okay, but it's possible, and it's profoundly relieving and liberating as well as being possible to internally really have the feeling of not being in control, not trying to be in control not being interested in control, letting it all happen, letting it all happen. 
That sounds terrifying to us, and it even sounds irresponsible. It sounds like if I let go of controlling and managing, then everything would fall apart. If I let go of controlling and managing my own time and energy, I would fall apart, and I'd find myself just on the sofa eating crisps and watching TV all day. No, but really, that's the belief a lot of us have, that I I have to constantly keep whipping myself into shape and making myself be functional and responsible because I'm afraid of that part of me that actually would just become some kind of slob or some kind of maniac or if I wasn't keeping myself on the straight and narrow etc and um, it's true that we have those kind of you know impulses within us the impulse to just slob out or the impulse to just satisfy all our appetites etc but that's not all that's going on you actually you can pass through that to a sense of Oh, nothing to control and coming to know qualities of genuine ease and and relaxation and yet not fall apart, you know, actually keep one's capacity to be responsive and responsible is actually enhanced by dropping the control because control is agitating internally and it's and it's rigid externally. So, oh, what we talk about as the dropping of control might more accurately see as the as the softening of inner um, agitation and outer rigidity. Oh, now that starts to look very different. One's capacity to actually discern what's happening, discern a response. And it comes back to that, that gap between stimulus and response so that you can respond as things happen rather than trying to control what's happening. Your capacity to control what's happening is very, very minor. You know, I mean, because deaths just happen, fires just happen, you know, or illness happens. I mean, a, a pandemic just happened, you know, uh, just stuff happens that's way outside of our control. So it's like, well, given the, the absolute undeniable truth of that, what are you more interested in? Trying to control what happens or being flexible and in how you respond to what happens, including all the inevitably unforeseeable things. And I may be now uh, sort of extending teachers of the Buddha a bit too far, but I'm kind of curious about the kind of paradoxes in a lot of the teaching. So it's part of what you're part of what you're saying essentially is both do plan and not to plan. So essentially, have a feeling for a direction that you might go in, uh, and then deal and, and then respond to the stuff of life. Or is, you know, I guess, you know, and I guess this also comes back to discernment in the same way we were talking about before. But you know, if, if I was to, to sit it down to question, so does that mean I plan or I don't plan? Right. Well, there's two, we could see two different kinds of planning, right? One is idealistic. And you see, I mean, the classic example is the five-year business plan or that you're supposed to submit, which is absolutely preposterous. It's absolutely preposterous. It would be interesting to see a study of companies Look at their five-year plan that they made five years ago and then look at what's happened in five years. How closely does the, what happens mirror the five-year plan? The five-year plan is, is just preposterous You just because you, you, you're making up some sense of what you want to happen. But whether it will happen or will happen to a lesser extent, a greater extent or a totally different extent is utterly unknowable, utterly unknowable. So that's the that's the plan that we're used to, the plan that says, okay, well, in year one, this is, and then in year two, we're going to do this. And it's sort of pointed to this outwards, to this vision, which is you know, 
utterly unknowable and then the, the the kind of the bullshit that we tell each other or that we tell the bank or whoever it is about how we're going to get there so i have zero interest or faith in that kind of plan even though you might need to make one sometimes for the bank <laughs> and then yeah. there's the other kind of plan which to use the same word you do is more about the direction it's like oh this is what our values are this is what our vision is and so this is how we this is the 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 way in which we're going to point ourselves forward this is what our vision is, right? what we think we can offer, what we want to happen. This is what our values are, right? The, the things we want to make sure we keep in place along the way. There, there's a plan to that, but it's a plan that isn't based on some imagined future that we're trying to get to. It's, a, it's, it's one that's grounded in the, what we're doing now and the way we're doing it. And that kind of, that's, that's a plan, if you like, but it's not a pie-in-the-sky plan. It's not a castles-in-the-air plan. It's a here-we-are, and it's one that... It, we're just constantly checking in with ourselves. What's our vision and what are, what are our, our values? And in that sense, that maps on very, very nicely to the inner practice of meditation. Where you can get fixated on or some getting to some peaceful state, right? That's your five-year plan in meditation. I want to get to a enlightenment or a peaceful state. <laughs> and, and it's hopeless. You torture yourself trying to make your mind be other than it is. Right? Or you come back to, oh, no, my plan is to not cultivate and nourish these qualities, to cultivate and nourish presence and openness and depth of feeling and capacity to, to sense what's happening and respond more skillfully, etc. So I would say that that's the crucial difference, right? It's not to plan or not to plan. It's whether you're planning in an idealistic and ultimately deluded way or whether you're planning in a present-centered uh, uh, way. So values, let values and vision be at the heart of your plan. And where you think you're going to get to, that ain't in your hands, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that. Um, so that, that takes us to the, the last thing we'll sort of talk about, which I guess is a sort of continuation of that, which is something which came up at the end of our sort of, uh, sort of prep conversation we had last week was this thing around decision-making. And the reason that that was in my mind is, you know, uh, how decisions are made, of course, is a big thing in... Uh, again, in a kind of company culture, but also there's a, another good friend of mine, and he um, is sort of in a big sort of career transition. His whole kind of old life role not kind of resonating. He's taken time out, and he said that he's been trying to kind of make this. You know, there's like a range of different things he could do now, uh, and he they're all quite different. And uh, he was sort of articulating just to me in an email exchange we were having about how to make the decision about what is right. You know, like one of them, the kind of shorthand version, you know, one of them's like a sort of obvious continuation of sort of person leading big organization. Another one is um, something completely different. One of them is, you know, and there's all these different routes, let's say three different routes, essentially, of what he may do that are quite different. And he was talking about how to make the decision between what those things were. And uh, that kind of together with this idea that people leading organisations feel that part of their responsibility is to help people make good decisions or help the organisation make good decisions. And we touched on this just at the end. And I, I've been sort of reflecting on what I thought was happening with that. But then I, I really liked where our conversation was going. So I thought it, we couldn't have this conversation without at least touching on this point of decision making and what is going on for people yeah how to make good decisions that's the other weird out to lunch perspective that i might have which i would say yeah, i don't really believe in decision <laughs> like there, there is such a thing <laughs> as decision making i would say the 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 i see no evidence that i've ever made a decision 
and therefore I have no interest in ever trying to make a decision. <laughs> so let me back up and say what I mean <laughs> by that. Uh, what do you mean no evidence? I'm sure you're listening to this. Anybody could look back and find lots of evidence for all the decisions I'd made. And not only the fact that I have made decisions, but there where, thank goodness, I made the right decision. And there, oh, that time I made the wrong decision. And if only I had I decided something else, etc. If only I'd kept that stock, you know. So the first thing is, the if only thing is utterly useless. Because... There is no if only. It's if only I had done something different means the the entire universe would be different, right? You're, you're, it's, it's so, it, it looks as if I could have made a different decision, but you couldn't have. You couldn't have. You, you just couldn't have. You made the decision that you made, so let's just use the language of decision making for a moment. You did what you did because in that moment, with all the conditions the way they were, the thing you did seemed to you either the best thing to do or the only thing to do or the inevitable thing to do or the thing you were forced to do. Whatever it was, the conditions were such that that was what you did. If you could rewind the universe to that moment, you'd do exactly the same again, right? Because you would do it, you know. So that's the important thing. We always are responding to a variety of inner and outer influences, Right. That's what, how our life is. We're going along and then I see a fork in the road. Oh, shall I go left or right? And left looks attractive to me for maybe and right looks attractive for some different reasons. And then I have my own inner history of the times I've chosen to go left or right. And, you know, and so all of that's acting on me, my own habits of what I feel attracted to or what I feel safe or comfortable with or what I'm afraid of, etc., plus whatever those things look like to me. And sometimes it's just that. It's like, oh, here are different influences. And for whatever reason, mixture of inner and outer influences, I feel like I'm drawn more to the left. And so I find myself going down that left path. And then I look back and say, well, in the end, I decided to go left. And by putting it in that language, you make it sound as if I, I actually stood back and made a decision. Whereas it's much more that we're responding to influences. And by saying I made a decision, it makes it sound as if I could have made a different decision. So all that's giving ourselves an illusion or a veneer of control or agency that we don't really have when we really step inside and sense into that. And then the other thing that's happening, sometimes it's, it's not that at all. It's like, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, I could go left. I could go right. I don't know. And generally we find... I don't know, to be a very uncomfortable place. And so when we're in, I don't know what to do, or I don't know where to go, or I don't know which one to take, etc. Because we're uncomfortable, we have the feeling, I should know, I should know. Knowing, we equate with security and certainty. And not knowing, we equate with uh, insecurity and discomfort. And so same thing those inner and outer factors are, are at play and often we'll we'll tend to kind of lurch towards one or the other and if, if we really look carefully we see that what i called a decision was actually an inner reaction because i was uncomfortable with not knowing and again we say oh then i decided to as if it was some kind of 
pure, clear, objective process rather than essentially just an inner movement that we didn't really have a great deal of agency over. We didn't even realise that we were just uncomfortable with, the, with, with not knowing. We didn't realise the process of insecurity that that set up in us. And we didn't really realise the way in which we were kind of unconsciously weighing up those things and, and looking for the thing that I would hope would be least uncomfortable and then lurching off towards that. So I really encourage people about, around the process of what we call decision-making to kind of, you know, just pay attention, basically. Pay close attention to the inner and outer factors. And especially the inner factors, because we tend to notice the outer influences more easily. Oh, well, this option says that it's going to do this for me, and that option says it's going to do that. Sometimes it's more, more clear, sometimes it's less clear, sometimes there are more variables, etc. But the inner influences we often don't notice. So I encourage people to pay attention to the inner influences and especially there's a the way we train ourselves to get familiar with and comfortable with not knowing. Because if you're really okay, I don't know. Right now, I don't know. That's not a wrong thing. It's not a bad thing. It's just the truth. Sometimes, sometimes it's easy to know and then off you go. And sometimes I don't know. Oh, you just get comfortable with not knowing. It sort of opens up this space of the kind of the miracle of what we call choice points, right? The fact that, oh, here's this fork in the road. I have no idea really of knowing what will happen, whether I go left or right. I think I know. I say, oh, well, if I go left, it'll be like this. But we don't know how it'll be. If I go right, it'll be like this. If I keep the stock, if I sell the stock, etc. We don't know. We don't know. And so getting comfortable with the not knowing actually creates the space in which we just clarity, clarity about the influence in internal factors and how they're interacting with the external factors. And then the clarity to be able to just f like allow ourselves to move left or move right, freed from the sense of heavy responsibility that I've got to make the right decision. Because no. actually, I've got to make the right decision is the opposite. It, it, it gives us a sense of intensity, pressure, etc., which sh shuts down that clarity, I would say. And then we find we're able to, there's this lovely line from a kind of mystic baseball player, Yogi Barra, who has a whole bunch of great aphorisms. And one of them he has is, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. <laughs> i love that line it is a, it is a brilliant line i kind of think that's it and i think that's probably a, a really good place to to kind of end because i think i guess a lot of where this sort of comes up people is where they are where, where they are approaching the fork in the road because and you can sort of see why so the kind of feeling like they need to make a decision is because something is weighing on them and I think about my own experience that I, the, the language of lurch, I can really feel that is kind of, I'm kind of holding on, holding on, holding on, probably a bit scared that I'm going to make the wrong decision or a bit scared about the idea of consequence or whatever it might be. And you hold, 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 and then I lurch one way uh, just because it's, you know, and I've kind of, and even if I was sort of engaging with the idea of um, trying to learn how to sit with discomfort and practice with discomfort, there'd definitely be part of my mind which the narrative while I was sitting with discomfort is, okay, you're holding on, you're holding on, you're sitting with discomfort, you're waiting for some sort of insight about which way to go. But equally, then I'm just sort of stuck in a completely different sort of stream of noise before I lurch on another route. So that kind of invitation to learn how to sit with discomfort, again, a simple sounding thing, but a kind of in, in infinitely deep. Very good. Well, thank you very much, Martin. Uh, where would people 
find more of your management wisdom <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> management wisdom isn't quite my brand so they can find something about me on my website martinalewood.com uh, they can find me on instagram at martinalewood but uh, it, mostly what they'll find is stuff about uh, meditation and the buddhist world in which i kind of help people to train their minds and free their hearts and transform their lives and um, a, a changed relationship to management would be a happy side effect of that (laughs) very good well thank you very very much really appreciate you taking the time thank you again for listening we really hope you enjoyed that conversation as ever if you like what we're doing uh, if you think anyone if anyone you know would benefit from listening to this conversation enjoy it or dislike it even as much as you have please feel free to share it Uh, We really appreciate you taking the time to do that. The sharing is the lifeblood of this. Sharing and liking, I think, are the the currency of our modern time. So if you take a moment to, you know, share it with somebody who you think would benefit, we hugely appreciate that. Or even take some time to write a review. Uh, Irrespective, if you like what we're doing, you can find out more. If you search up peripheral-thinking.com, you'll find your way to the podcast website, You can sign up there, you can register there, you can keep abreast of everything that we're doing. We'd be sure to keep you notified as soon as the next conversations go live. Meantime, thanks again for your time. Thanks again for your ears. uh, And we look forward to you joining us next time.